I've got to get right into this word this morning. And uh, my heart's been heavy for, for uh, this entire week. And so as I move into this word, I want you to listen closely. Because I'm launching a brand new series this morning called The, the God of This City. I, I've got to get into this, this word and please understand my heart. I want to confront our history today. What us Southerners are really good at doing is acting like things don't happen in our family. We're really good at just kind of brushing over the past and the history and the things that we've been through because many times it's so painful. And it was hearing this song over a year ago, the God of this city, that God began to burn this in my spirit. But I couldn't do this message until he allowed me to. How many of you know my heart is that we are a church for all nations? Now follow me because this morning I'm going to confront some things that you may not like very much. In fact, I could not preach this message in most churches in this city or in America. But I can preach it at the summit because this is who we are. Reminded of Rome, Rome was overtaxed, oversexed, and sports was their only craze. And just as Nero sat and fiddled while Rome was burning, I need you to understand, I think America is a hotbed right now. I think there's such political unrest and there's so many things going on that God is going to have to pour out His Spirit in our nation. And so as I move into this word, confronting our history, dealing with our past, this is part one of God of this city. And I am preaching for the next couple of weeks, at least the next two weeks, simply on Birmingham. So if you're listening to this by CD and you're a, a, a new person to our church at the summit, I want you to know you're here for a reason. Because we plan on using this series in our new members packet. So let's get into this. In fact, look what it says in Isaiah 58 verse 12. And we're going to read the whole scripture at the end of the message. But it's so powerful in the message Bible. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Now stop right there because I know we haven't read Isaiah 40 verse 29 that we shall mount up with wings as eagles and soar. How many of you get that? That's our theme scripture. It's time to soar. Part of soaring is the only way you can fly is get rid of some of the baggage, some of the weight. So it goes on to say in Isaiah 58 verse 12, you use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. <laughs> this is the repair of the breach scripture. Restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. Are you with me so far? I'd love to stand up on the back of a truck and, and pray this scripture over New Orleans. But just as Katrina destroyed New Orleans, just as the, I believe the, the government, the local, the, the state, and the national government sat and watched that happen. I believe Birmingham was wiped out even greater than Katrina could have done years ago. I'm going to deal with our past. I'm going to deal with some things over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to point out the two high places in Birmingham to you, if you'll let me do that. The only other person I've ever heard to even touch on this was Mark Carell. And so, as God began to burn in my heart that I was to preach this series, I want you to look and see what it says in Psalms 46. A promise for us. It says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most, highly, the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. I've heard prophetic words from people like Dutch Sheets talking about Birmingham will be the place that people look at because of restoration. I've heard people talk about that Birmingham will confront her past and lead a nation into the future. I believe the Holy Spirit is going to rise up out of our city and do incredible things. Do you believe that today? Can you give God a praise offering? But I'm reminded of Mark 13, verse 8, where it simply says, Nation, brother will rise up against brother, nation against nation. And nation against nation means race against race. Can we change a city? My Bible tells me in Ephesians... That I'm called to be an imitator of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice unto God. You know what I've learned? And I did a sermon on this years ago, but yeah, bonding to what breaks you. It's amazing how if you break something, if you break a horse, it lets you ride it. If you break somebody's spirit, it's the same thing. You bond to what breaks you. It's the person that will sit on the witness stand in a courtroom and defend the person that kidnapped them or hurt them. 
you bond so many times to what breaks you. And if you live in an atmosphere long enough, many times you just become a part of the scenery. You don't feel it anymore. You don't understand the forces that are going on around you because really you're part of the forces. Because you yourself have taken on that very spirit. So what you have to understand is, is I honestly believe that, that this is a call to wake up. It's a call to understand. Are we here simply to occupy or are we here to take back the land? I, 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 last year, or October 2008 rather, uh, I, I shared the Revelation series and, and I spoke about Jonah. And, and I, I love what the scripture says in Jonah. Jonah's complaining. Jonah was a racist, by the way. And Jonah had issues in his life. He didn't like the Gentiles. You'll find that throughout the Bible. And, and you know what's, and I love what the word says right here. It says, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Here's Jonah, very end of his book. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, literally meaning these people are so depraved that the hand that they ate with, they were also using when they went to the restroom. And then it goes on to say, and many cattle as well, but I love the very last line in the book of Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? It's one of the most powerful uh, uh, verses in God's word. But so follow me because I want to awaken a sense of urgency. Proverbs 29, 18, it, where there is no vision of people perish, but happy is he that keepeth the law. But I love what it says in the, uh, the message Bible. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. How many of you are going to be blessed in here? Give God a praise offering. Amen. See, I grew up. My dad would pastor these little churches that were really good for one thing, the making and the breaking of a man of God. And we go to these little towns. And my dad would go to Slocum or Luverne. And I can remember sitting in the car with my brother and sister and us driving into these cities to do what's called a tryout sermon. And that's where they vote on you and they decide if you're going to be the pastor. And I can remember as we would pull into those cities, us kids were anxious and nervous, mad at times because we didn't want to leave our friends. But God had released him from one place to go to the next. And we'd pull in there and, and, and I, I, my dad would be so preoccupied and he'd be looking at the city. And back then we didn't understand that when you pull into a city you're not just confronting today you're confronting yesterday so many times we'd pull into a city as this new family coming in to do this big work for god and we didn't know there were ancient demons waiting on us maybe that's why in one of those towns my sister was molested maybe that's why in one of those towns, my mom tried to commit suicide. Because we didn't understand the power of intercession. We didn't understand the power of prayer. So here's what I've learned. Before freedom can come to a city, there always, there's always resistance from its history. What do you mean? Before freedom can come into a city, there is always resistance from its history. Write this down, number one. The storm of resistance. Anytime you're going to get a breakthrough, you're going to have a battle first. It means there's going to be storms. There'll be those that refuse to get in the boat. There'll be those that refuse to stay in the boat. There'll be those that refuse to enjoy the journey. But just when you set off on the journey, the enemy will wait till you get far enough away from shore where you really can't turn back. And that's when the storms and the tempest and the waves come up. And it's in the midst of the storm that you better remember who's in the boat. Look, look what God's word says in Mark chapter 4 verse 35. This is leading up to something. Everybody preaches about the storm, and everybody preaches about the man at Gadarenes, but actually they were one story. What do you mean? That day when evening came, Jesus, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. Just as he was in the boat, there was also other boats with him. A furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? <laughs> Isn't that cool right there? Sounds like some of our prayer lives when we're doing our bills. Watch. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? That's cool right there. Because they're like, dude, we didn't see this side of you. When you can walk up to the front of a boat and go, waves lay down, rain, stop, wind. 
stop. Because, see, those very elements of nature recognize the one who spoke them into existence in the first place. And everybody knows you know how to hear the one who brought you into existence. Are you with me so far? Even the wind and the waves obey him is what it says right there. Listen, Jesus wasn't on some suicide mission. No. But the enemy was trying to stop his arrival to the next place. Why? Because the enemy knew what was waiting on the shore. Why? Because the next great evangelist was sitting on the shore. And the enemy didn't want it, him to get over there. Do you understand there's a war that's going on? But we do not wage war as the world does. We battle, the Bible says. But Jesus is our weapon. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They're not carnal, the Bible says. On contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Everybody say stronghold. Verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of, of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Can I tell you, there is a moment as a Christian where you just grow up. And defeat doesn't own its own your vocabulary like it always has. Well, you don't quit once a week. Well, you don't stop halfway. Can I tell you that when you really fall in love with Jesus, there's no there's no there's no seconds to that. There's not, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll go back to this. No, no. Once you fall in love with Jesus, you may have rough weeks and have rough days, but you make up your mind, I can't go back. There's nothing back there for me. If I go back, it will kill me. Is anybody awake this morning? You begin to understand. Look at Ephesians 6. See, you've got to learn what we're warring against. It's not the people in your house or the guy next door or the guy in the cubicle at work or the policeman on the street. Our battle is not against those people. Our battle is not against people at all. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might take your stand against the enemy, the devil's schemes. The word scheme there is wiles. It means trickery. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Really? Because your boss is getting on your nerves. That neighbor that's got the dog that won't shut up. I got the guy. He lives right behind me. But look what the Bible says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, goes on to say, we know, stand firm, put on the belt buckle. We know what the scripture says. We can preach it to you a thousand times, but there's a moment where the word defeat has to leave your vocabulary because you understand he's in the boat. Two, but when you arrive, you'll understand your storm. Oh, this is going to get good now. You'll understand it wasn't personal. You'll understand that God wasn't playing pin the tail on the donkey with you. You'll understand that it it had nothing to do with you. So many times in our Christian walk, it's all about us and our emotions. And God says it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with things that are going on in the heavenly realm that you don't realize. Jesus and the disciples finally reached the shore. And that is the exact moment. They're kind of seasick. They've They've been riding with the king. And he had to get up and rebuke the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, they finally get out of the boat. I can see old Peter, because he was a big lug, dropping to his knees and kissing the sand. We made it. Thank God we made it. And then all of a sudden, he sees some nasty toenails coming towards him. You ever seen those toenails that just... My grandpa's toenails, I mean, I'm serious. I was like, he could, use, he could, he could have stabbed somebody 10 feet off. It's nasty. But it's not till you get to the shore that you understand your storm. It's not till you pull into the place. You're not getting this just yet. There was a man who God could still use. That's why the storm was put into place. God was not finished with him yet. Mark chapter 5 verse 1. They went across the, uh, across the lake to the region of Gadarenes. What is Gadarenes or Gerasenes? What does that mean? Understand, this is the Canaanite people. We all, I'll get into that a little bit deeper. But when Jesus got out of the boat, a man, Mark chapter 5 verse 1 through 9, a man with an evil spirit from the tombs, came to meet him. You hadn't really been met by somebody till you meet somebody that's in the tombs. And this man, verse 3, 
lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the, the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. This dude had an anger issue. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with the stones. Welcome to the men of America. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice. What do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. It's amazing. The demons knew who Jesus was. The disciples 15 minutes before didn't even recognize him. Isn't that awesome? It goes on to say, he shouted at the top of his voice. What do you want with me, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked, what's your name? He said, my name is many. My name is legion. My name is mob. The word legion means a mob. He replied, for we are many. Jesus gets in the boat. He's been doing ministry. Should be the end of the day. Time to go watch Sports Center. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's just fed 5,000. Gets in the boat. The disciples are just riding along. Next thing you know, a storm comes up because hell says, uh-oh, he's about to invade a piece of territory. All of a sudden, the storm comes up. Disciples think they're going to die. Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves. Next thing you know, Jesus is standing on the seashore. And a man who has been tortured for generations, a man who has demonic powers, a man from the region of Gerasenes, which is descendants of Canaan, son of Ham, who is son of Noah. What do you mean? He was the one that was cursed because he looked upon his naked father and understand something. He was cursed to serve his brothers. So there's hatred in this land. All of a sudden, Jesus lands there and something changes. Are you getting this? Do you get this? Write this down. Number three. They were here before you arrived. I want you to understand. I believe that there are geographical demonic forces and strongholds over certain areas. Let's say that again. In every area, there are demonic strongholds. There are forces. And they're usually located at the gates of each city. I'm going somewhere. Forces that have set themselves up in order to have dominion. And everything is fine and you can have your sweet little church service and they will not mess with you. Until you begin to realize the dominion that you possess. In fact, those very demons looked at Jesus and they said, please don't make us leave the region. I'll leave Pat alone. I'll leave Nate alone. I'll leave Abby alone. I'll leave Karen alone. But don't make me leave that other family alone. So while you're free in your neighborhood, the guy on both sides of you next door is not. And all you did was put out red X. All you did was put out just a little poison. All you did was keep the varmints out of your yard. Because the demons say, you know what? All right, we'll leave you alone. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to mess with the guy next door. We're going to go get him. Follow me. And so all we do is it's like swapping a cough, swapping a cold. And God is saying, I'm looking for people that will rise up and say enough over my city. Remember what it said in Luke 8? Luke 8, 31, the same scripture. They said to him, don't make us depart to the abyss. Don't make us go to emptiness because a demonic power has to have a vessel. But don't make us to go where there's no vessels. I'm going somewhere. Look at Psalms 55, verse 9. It says this. I love this scripture. Confuse the wicked, O Lord. Confound their speech. For I see violence and strife in the city. Birmingham. Number six in America for homicides. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. Folks, I've traveled this world. I can tell you that I have seen overwhelming strongholds in different cities. I can tell you in certain places I go, I have certain types of dreams. I can tell you that if you go to Southeast Asia, the forces that you will battle with are mysticism and religion. If you go to South America, been there, voodoo mixed with Catholicism, or voodoo mixed with religion. South America, same thing. Or rather, Europe, hedonism with, mixed with a very cold, ancient spirit of religion. Australia, Humanism. Alaska, Alaska, part of the 50. Mysticism. I have dreams of animals attacking me when I sleep there. I know you don't think this is weird, and I'm okay with it. 
I'm getting real with you today. Is that all right? You go to the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, hedonism and spiritualism are the spirits over that area. Northern parts of U.S. and Canada, a very dry spiritual climate. Midwest, spirit of religion, belt buckle, Bible belt. Florida, everything. Northeast and East Coast, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont. Tell you what you'll face when you go to those places, deep deep roots of religion, humanistic strongholds. Northwest, or excuse me, Southwest, mysticism and religion. Southeast, that's us. Religious spirits mixed with hedonism. I can raise hell on Saturday and worship on Sunday. See, follow me. Because my goal for this series is to expose our church to an understanding that you can make a difference, that you can make a stand, you can do battle. I believe we can win this war. It's time to take a Holy Spirit stand for righteousness. Remember when Daniel, remember Daniel chapter 10, he prayed for 21 days concerning the city of Jerusalem and he went to war and the Bible says during those days, I, Daniel, went into mourning over Jerusalem for three weeks. I ate only plain and simple food, no seasoning or meat or wine. I neither bathed nor shaved until three weeks were up. But now look what it goes on to say because here's Daniel. Daniel praying for 21 days and he thinks there's going to be a breakthrough. We pray for three hours and we think we're going to have a breakthrough. And God says it's bigger than that. It's stronger than that. Look what it says in verse 12 through 14 of the message Bible of Daniel chapter 10. It goes on to say, relax, Daniel. Angel of the Lord speaking to him. Don't be afraid. From this moment, you decided to humble yourself to receive understanding. Your prayer was heard. And I set out to come to you. But I was waylaid. You ever been waylaid? That's when somebody sucker punches you. Watch. By the angel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and was delayed for a good three weeks. And then Michael, one of the chief angel princes, intervened to help me. I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And now I'm here to help you understanding what will eventually happen to your people. The vision has to do with what's ahead. It goes on to say, so stand firm. What are you talking about? Daniel said, I've been praying for my city. I've been praying over this area. He was praying for his city. He was praying for a breakthrough in Jerusalem during a time of bondage, slavery. Write this down, number four. Let's go deep now. It's going to get intense. A city established at the crossroads that is still at a crossroads. Birmingham. What do you mean? Corruption. Violence. The last six county commissioners of this city have been indicted. Former mayors sitting in jail. Something's going on in our city. For over 130 years, let me give you a little history. Birmingham was founded in 1871 at the crossing of the Alabama and Chattanooga and South and North Alabama railroads. Two railroads met, Birmingham was formed. The name comes from the largest industrial city in Birmingham, England. In fact, a friend of mine in England said, I want you to plant a summit church in Birmingham, England, if you can do it in Birmingham, Alabama. It is rich with deposits of coal, iron ore, and limestone. Follow me. You all know this. I'm just giving you a little history lesson. This sixth grade Alabama history real quick. Perfect for making it what was called the steel city. Historians will tell you that there's six epic moments in the history of Birmingham, Alabama. Six Epics, six points in history that Birmingham can be divided in. Remember, it's only been around 130 years. It's relatively a a young city. From the 1830s to the 1860s, Elaton Construction Company, which is a small, formed a, a small pioneer settlement. There was no town of any consequence. The greatest cities in Alabama were Mobile and Selma and Montgomery. Really, While people fought in the Confederate War here, it was considered an insignificant area. Nobody fought for this area. The second period of Birmingham's history was 1870 to 1880. It was a time when railroads and land barons built a town that was named Birmingham. And that is when they began to call it the Magic City. In 1873, two years after it was established, cholera hit. And 20,000 people is suddenly reduced down to 2,000 people. Wiped out the city. 1874, the National Depression hit. A Great Depression hit and wiped out Birmingham again. 
During this time, though, Birmingham began to establish itself. They started Mardi Gras parades once a year. What was amazing is every time they would try to have the parade, it would drop as much as 13 below zero in our southern town. And they'd have to cancel it. They decided to create something called the Vulcan during this time. It showed up in the first newspaper pushing who Birmingham was. The Vulcan statue work began on it. A local pastor, as a matter of fact, drew a painting of Vulcan sitting on Red Mountain. Isn't it amazing the ones that are supposed to be for what God is doing are the stupidest ones? Who's Vulcan? It's the mystical god of metalworking. It's the largest iron figure ever cast and is second only to the Statue of Liberty. The statue was Birmingham's entry into the 1904 World Fair where it won first place in St. Louis. There are two high places in Birmingham. I'm preaching about our city. I hope you don't mind this. There's Shades Mountain and there's Red Mountain. On both of those two high places, there are monuments to unknown gods, to fake gods. It's amazing to me that every god that besides Jesus that rises up always takes the worst attributes of manhood, of mankind. I'll prove it to you in just a second. So I wanted to preach about our city, what God wants to do in our city. So I began to study who in the world was Vulcan, uh, who in the world is, is Vulcan. By the way, in 1906, it was disassembled for 30 years. During that 30 years, revival broke out in Birmingham, Alabama. During that period of time that it was not sitting on the mountain, the first Pentecostal church was raised up. During that period of time, churches began to explode. Souls were saved. Outreach and missions were dedicated in this city. For 30-something years, there was a break until suddenly a secret society decided to put it right back up. Are you with me so far? Who's Vulcan, the god of anger, smithery, which is the trade of blacksmith. He is one of the 12 deities that was worshipped in Rome. He was worshipped in Rome on August 23rd of every year at the festival of Volcanelia, or Volcanelia, which is where we get the word volcanoes. He was an angry child who was thrown out of Mount Olympus, according to Greek mythology, because he was ugly, thrown into the seas where he would be raised. I'll give you just a quick quick history of who Vulcan is, where he would be raised until all of a sudden one day he would find himself on a shore and he would find fire. He would capture fire, take it down to the depths of sea, and he would begin to work metal. And, and out of it he began to realize that he could turn metal and bronze and steel into certain items by melting them down. This is the story of Vulcan, a demonic story. Follow me for a second. We know that all of a sudden Vulcan um, decided because the other gods had been mean to him, he created fake thrones for the gods to sit on. Carries the thrones to them. They sit down. And all of a sudden, bars pop up and hold them in place. They're freaking out, these gods, this mythology. And all of a sudden, they say, what do you want? Set us free. And he said, I need a wife. So they gave him Venus, the goddess of love. He takes her to the depths of the seas, but she sneaks off and sleeps with other gods. He would get so angry that he would take his iron and metal and, and, and in fact in Thyatira, there's still a temple set up to Vulcan. Paul talked about gods there. Paul confronted Vulcan. And as he would beat the metal because his wife was unfaithful to him, it would cause sparks and they say that would cause volcanoes. And so here we have this fake God, this God of trickery, this God of anger, this God of violence. In fact, when Rome burned in AD 64, they built altars all over the city to Vulcan to try to appease him from burning the city anymore. So what sits over our city as the second tallest statue in the United States is a God of anger and trickery. Can I preach? We also know that on the other point in our city is the Temple of Vesta, and I'll get into that deeper next week. Which, by the way, was, we've heard of the seven. It's, it's also called the Temple Cybel, but it was the first mayor of Birmingham went to Italy and saw it and decided to build it right here in Birmingham. And it was then moved to the highest point where a Baptist church, Sage Mountain Baptist Church, first met in it. And, and then they tore part of it down. And now it sits on the other point. And from one point, Vulcan see the Temple Vesta, which the Vesta Temple was put to guard the fire, the hearth. It had seven virgins in it. You're not getting this. It was a lust temple. It was a temple that was kept the fire burning for man, lust burning. So you've got anger, trickery, and lust over our city at the two highest points, looking at each other every single day. Do you think I'm stretching this? This is real stuff. In fact, in 1947, a newspaper called Vulcan the God of Safety over Birmingham. 
In fact, by the way, I didn't know this, but this week they start repainting him. So the statue over our city, what is the fourth distinct period? Uh, began with the Depression through the late 1950s and the decade. And then the fifth was the decade of the 60s and the early 70s. This was the epic moment that Birmingham is still known for. You're still with me, right? I'm going somewhere. It brought events that would forever change the image of this city. It was the historic era of police dogs and fire hoses and turned on civil rights demonstrators. Can I just say something? I'm going to stop right here because I I can feel the resistance in the atmosphere as I preach this. If you are prejudiced, you are welcome in this church. But you're not welcome to stay prejudiced. Because it is a demonic spirit that lowers man under your feet. And the only thing under my feet is the devil. And this church will be known as a church for all nations. I'm telling you, I'm going to preach this today. There's a rising up of people that says, I don't see red or yellow, black and white. I only see the color red. The blood of Jesus. It says there's no color. There's no, there's no ethnicity that I can sit and look. Somebody get excited. We will not have it here. Why are you so intense today, Pastor? Because I've waited almost four years to preach this. And the horrors of the 1960s still haunt the city today and have turned a permanent global spotlight on race relations, good and bad, in Birmingham. Newsweek magazine 2001 said that. Can I give you the words of Dr. King as he sat in the Birmingham jail, what is known as the Birmingham Letters, or the letter from the Birmingham jail, an open letter after 3,000 high school students who were standing up and fighting against segregation and fighting against sitting on certain parts of the bus. You know, you go, well, how can you preach about this, white boy? Let me tell you something. My daughter is Chinese, and I have walked into restaurants. And I have seen men that have fought in other wars on other soils and Asian nations. And they glance at our daughter and I see their face grimace. And I have once or twice had to look at them and said, do not look at my daughter. So I want to tell you that the problem in America is we all have some prejudices. And I'm going to get there in just a second. Let me read you some things from the Birmingham letters that were written by Dr. King. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which is constantly refused to negotiate is to conforce to confront its issue. It seeks, it seeks to so dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. Dr. King said, I must confess that I'm not afraid of the word tension. He also would write, we know through painful experiences that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. He said there's two types of law. One has not, one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. You still with me? He said, I would agree with St. Augustine that, it, that an unjust law is no law at all. Talked about the church. He said... Shallow understanding from people of good will is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. It's very powerful. I'm going to say that again. Shallow understanding of people of good will is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. He said lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He said, actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. I love what he said. By the way, he didn't write this letter to anybody. It was found and published before he knew it. He actually got angry about it being published. He said, we have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for appalling silence of the good people. He said, we must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always right to do right. He said, oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. He said this, the Negro... This is his words. Has many pent up resentments and latent frustrations and he must release them. He said, was not Jesus, was Jesus not an extremist for love? He said, was Paul not an extremist for the Christian gospel? He said this, I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Uh oh. <laughs> I say this is a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who's been sustained by its spiritual blessings, who remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. He said there can be no deep disappointment where there's not deep love. 
He said, we will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over this nation because the goal of America is to be free. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in its echoing demands of this great nation. Are you getting this? And let me wrap this up with this part. He said, one day the South will know that when this disinherited children of God sat down at a lunch counter, they were in reality standing up for what is best in America dream, for the most sacred values of our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug by the founding fathers in their foundation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Then he said, let us hope, let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with our scintillating beauty. Are you getting this? Then it all disappeared, and by the mid-70s, we established UAB, and we became known as a, a hospital city, and businesses moved in. But can I tell you that God is calling our church to be the church that stands up and says, there is no color barrier, there is no color lines. If you feel that, if you have that, it's time to get free. i got to close. Confronting the spirit of racism and anger with love. Jesus gets out of the boat. Man runs up to him. He's such an angry man that not even the chains can hold him. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And a large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. The evil spirits came and went into the pigs the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep hill into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported to the countryside and people went out to see what had happened. Can you imagine looking in the water and see 2,000 pigs floating? Now this is the key verse, verse 15. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Watch. You notice Jesus never spoke to the man. He just confronted the spirit. The spirit said, let's stay in the region. And they were afraid. Because a man had gotten free. We know that Jesus' love is what conquered the anger in this man. The man would cut himself. He would beat himself. Couldn't hold chains. The Bible says in James 1.19, be slow to anger. Look what it says in Ephesians 4 verse 26. It says, be angry and sin not. What in the world does that mean? It means it's okay to get upset about things as long as it doesn't take root in your life and own you. Jesus got angry about things. But then it goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, look what else it tells us what we're supposed to be. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Wait a minute, he just said I could be angry. It's a different type of anger right there. See, I was raised where I would come and visit my parent, my grandparents in this city and I would hear racial remarks from my grandfather. I didn't understand it because my father was from Detroit. I, we didn't, I didn't understand it. My dad stood up to a church in, in Luverne, Alabama because my best friend was a, was a black young man. His name was Johnny. He's now one of the lawyers for the Olympics. But what you got to understand is my dad, these people came to Johnny or came to my dad and said, he can't come to this church, this little, this little redneck church. And, and my dad said, listen, you've had six pastors in the last three years. You mess with my son and his best friend. I'll leave and they'll close this place. Because I didn't see color. They fell in love with him. That young man. They paid for him to go to Auburn University. That little church did. But it took someone standing up and saying, wait a minute. It is not about that. Now listen to me. Because I've seen it on both sides. I've seen it if you're... Black or see, we all have prejudices, and what you got to understand is I've seen it, and I've seen it from from Pentecostals towards Baptists. I've seen it from Arabs towards Jews. I've seen it. Everybody's got their own thing. I, I've seen it where I've gone to get on a plane next to someone from the Middle East, scared to death. They might pull a cord and blow ourselves up. Two weeks ago, I dealt with that. And see, what we got to understand is I've seen it. I've seen it between churches. I've seen it between high school, Clay and Trustful and Pinson. Well, they're stuck up, or they're rednecks, or they're poor, or they're the other the side of the tracks. Can I tell you, racism is on all of us, but God is saying, I am calling you to get rid of it because it's going to be every tribe and every nation in heaven. And it's not going to be, you're not going to flash a card. They were afraid. 
They were, they did, why were they afraid, it says? Maybe, because Jesus already confronted anger. His love confronts anger. Maybe they didn't understand what it was like to look at a man differently. They were afraid to look at the past, how they'd always seen him. Maybe, maybe they themselves hadn't experienced freedom. Maybe they hated giving up their perceived ideas of somebody being less than them. Can you stand? I know I'm about out of time. Remember Galatians chapter 2? Paul's at Antioch. He comes in. Peter's sitting there. Peter would sit with everybody, the Gentiles, until the Jews showed up. And then Peter says, I don't want them to see me eating with those Gentiles. The Bible says Paul got in Peter's face about it. I think of Hitler's view of evolution amongst races. He wrote this in his mind cough. This demon-possessed man who would make this statement, if I can send the flower of German nation into the hell of war without the smallest pity for the shedding of precious German blood, then surely I have the right to remove millions of inferior races that breed like vermin. He read Darwin's theory of evolution and in his book, Mein Kampf, he came up with what he considered the perfect races. Ordic, blood, blue-eyed, close to Aryan. Germanic, predominantly Aryan. Mediterranean people, slight Aryan preponderance. Slavic, half Aryan, half ape. Asian, slight Aryan, more ape. Black, predominantly ape. Jews, ape. That's Hitler. That's his sickness. It's time for us not to see color in this city. It's time for us to heal the angry man. The only thing that will free an angry bound man who hates himself, who howls in the night, who lives in the tomb of death, is getting Jesus back on the shore. 2 Corinthians 13. Message Bible says this. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump and it jumps, but I don't have love, I got nothing. 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 If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to, to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've got, I've got nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't trust. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when, when others grovel. Take pleasure in the flowering of truth. It puts up with anything. It trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back but keeps going to the end. Last point. Free to preach the good news to the cities. The Bible says that this man in Mark chapter 5, people asked Jesus to leave the region because they didn't like what had happened. They didn't like the fact that... And by the way, the reason why he cast him into the pigs is because the reigning authority over that area of the Roman legion was the Boar Legion. And they deliberately had pigs to offend the Jews on their armor. So when Jesus cast the pigs into, or cast the demons into the pigs, and they committed suicide, <laughs> at that moment, he was saying, Rome, you have no authority over me. There's a new sheriff in town. That's why he cast him into the pigs. But see, what you got to understand is, the demon-possessed man who's now free runs up to Jesus and says, let me go with you. Let me go with you. And Jesus said, no, go home. Go back to Decapolis, which means ten cities. And the Bible says he went back and told the people all the things God had done. First evangelist. Pastor Sean, would you help me with this? I'm reminded of Brother Brian, who died in 1940, but he was called Salvation in Shoes and Religion in Shoes. And he would travel the streets of Birmingham preaching the gospel, feeding people, Christmas time giving gifts. This is a little statue downtown in our city. We need some more Brother Brian's to rise up. Brother Brian Mission's still there. It's a man that would give everything to everyone. Pray for the ones with cholera. Pray for people that were sick. 
There has been revival in Birmingham before. He helped lead it. But Isaiah 58, verse 9. Where are you at, Pastor Sean? Read this for me, the first one, the number one, if you would, Chris. This is Isaiah. Just read it for me. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sin. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to to the down and out. Your lies will begin to grow in the darkness. Your shadows, your shadowed lives, lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I give you full life in the emptiness of place. Firm muscles, strong bones. You will be like a well-watered garden. A gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build a new, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. The love of God set a man free. The power of confrontation can change a city. Before we can go farther in winning this city, we must confront our past. I need every person in this house to come stand right here for just a moment. Next week, I'm going to begin to build a bridge. So the opposite of anger... Is joy. The opposite of strife is peace. What if we built the bridge to this city? What if we became Isaiah 58? What if we repented for the sins of fathers? I was watching a former NFL linebacker on, it's called I'm Second. You need to check out this website, I'm Second. I am Second. And he's African-American, but he's, his name's Ken, Ken uh, Blanchard, I believe it is. He's talking about how he was raised to hate a certain color, hate white man. He said, I hated him. He said, I'd hit people so hard that I'd try to kill them on the football field. He said, but the only thing that could change me was a man named Jesus. What if we became the church for all nations? What if when you walked in that door, you realized God has a plan for Birmingham? What if we said no more? What if for the next seven days, every person you see, you did not see color? You didn't step to another side of the street because somebody was coming down your side of the street. What if suddenly... Love began to flow out of you that any man that was coming out of the tombs, the demons recognized you and said, you have the power to get rid of me. What if the person you're working next to or the person that you see, because God's going to, I'm telling you, just get ready. Ah. Let me got my text the last couple days. I've been texting, saying, pray, 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 pray. Because I was hacking up long yesterday. Part of my lungs still at the house. Hadn't been this sick in a while, man. Couldn't even come to the men's breakfast yesterday. And I went into the kitchen. I said, Karen, hell is fighting me over what I'm about to preach. But I believe. I can't preach this at most places. Couldn't, couldn't dare do it. But what if we can preach it here? Are you going to harp on this for a long time? 
If you ask me, I will. How many of you believe it's time for a message like this to be preached to this city? Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Don't look down. Just stick your hands out beside you. Take the person's hand beside you. Hold them up in the air. Say, Father, we're so sorry. For stuff in our lives. For prejudices. For fears. We repent. We repent for the sin in our life. Things that have held us back from you. Would you pour your spirit out on the Summit Church? Would you awaken Birmingham? Jesus, all the sin, all the harm and the pain, it doesn't heal overnight. But I will be the one that gets out of the boat, sharing love, running forces out. Jesus, now I understand my storm. Some of you need to cry out, man. You need to pray in the spirit right now. Say, now I understand my storm. I understand the storm. I understand the storm. There's been a war. There's been a war against our city. There's been a war trying to take this city out. It is time to change the image of Birmingham to the nation. I want it on CNN. I want it on MSNBC. I want it on Fox News. That are rising up in this city. It's a church like Highlands. They can start a dream center. A church like the Summit. That can rise up out of the ashes in three years. And begin to touch an area. Say, Jesus, heal our city. Reach up, take your hands now, and rub your eyes, and put your hand over your eyes. I know this is weird, just do it, please. And say, with my hand over my eyes, when I remove my hand, remove all barriers that I have set up. I will not think of others as less than me. Your word says in Romans, to not think of others as less than me. So today, when I remove my hand, give me new vision. Fill me with your spirit. I will go to the tombs.